Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dell, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi, I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. The ASX has performed surprisingly well this year, up over 18% despite concerns regarding trade wars and a slowing economy in Australia, and after a rough December quarter which saw markets fall around the world. The recent ASX reporting season delivered some quite interesting results, and these might help us understand where the Australian economy is heading, and if the strong performance of the market is a reflection of a more favourable environment for Australian companies, or whether investors should be more focused on headwinds that might be making some uh, headlines around the world. Shane Oliver from AMP Capital is one of Australia's best-known economists, and he's been keeping scorecard of company reports for many years now. Shane, thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So Shane, talk to me about how companies reporting recently are faring in today's economy. It's In aggregate, it's fairly rough. Uh, profit growth over the last financial year, that's the 12 months to June, was very low. It was just 1.3% once the dust settled. And that was down a little bit from initial expectations. So quite weak profit growth. Were it not, though, for the resources sector, that profit growth would have been negative to the tune of about uh, minus 2% or so. So yes, we have seen some modest profit growth in the Australian economy, but it's not fantastic. We have seen quite a sharp slowing, and that's consistent, I guess, with the slowdown in the Australian economy, um, tough conditions in the financial sector weighing on the banks, obviously retailers struggling a little bit. So it's overall, it's been a, a somewhat soft reporting season. We saw, on my count anyway, for the first time in a long while, more um, uh, downgrades than upgrades in terms of profit expectations going forward from analysts. We also saw a bit more in the way of negative profit surprise. That's where companies uh, deliver a result, which is a little bit less than expected. And uh, for the first time in a long time, um, the overall dividends were good. Now, there was a few companies out there who paid fantastic dividends, resources amongst them. Uh, but if you look at number of companies who are actually raising their dividends, it was quite, it was, it was actually quite low, less than 50% raised their dividends. Whereas the norm over the period I've been tracking it for is that way more than 50% raised their dividends. So we're still seeing good dividends in Australia. Um, but the fact that there's less companies raising their dividends tells me that there's a little bit less confidence about the outlook. That's quite interesting, and straight away I'm into a question without notice, so I'll apologise. If you're seeing companies not paying out as much in dividend, does that tell you that they're withholding to reinvest in the company, or they just don't have it to pay? Because there's been quite a question mark about the high payout ratios for a long time, whether or not that reflects inadequate investment in infrastructure and in human capital and all those sorts of things, uh, or whether it's simply that investors have become so attuned to receiving beautiful dividends they don't know how to give them up. I, I lean to the view that the main problem has been that companies lack confidence to invest. And that's uh, there's a bunch of reasons for that. Is for that. Uh, the GFC was such a huge event that its aftershocks have continued for a long time, um, that it's taken much longer for corporate confidence to recover than it normally would after a, uh, an economic shock. Uh, there's still spare capacity in the economy. When you ask Australian businesses, what's your major problem? They don't say high interest rates. You know, interest rates are very low. They actually say lack of demand. Uh, so they're not seeing a lot of demand come through, obviously, from consumers. Um, and I think 
Some Australian businesses outside the mining sector went through such a rough time through the mining boom when the Aussie dollar went to $1.10, when interest rates were much higher than they were in other parts of the world, uh, that they're a little bit sceptical. They're thinking, well, maybe the mining boom will come back and then we'll be squeezed out again like we were through the mining boom. So all of those things, I think, are the main reason why companies haven't been investing. Uh, In the meantime, yes, we have seen year after year of good dividend growth in Australia. Uh, Obviously, there is demand for that. Um, but I don't think that's the main reason why companies aren't investing. Um, I, I kind of think that it's quite healthy for Australian companies to pay decent dividends. And if they have some great project they want to invest in, then they send a letter to their shareholders and say, here's your dividend, uh, please participate in the dividend reinvestment plan and leave it up to the shareholder. I think that's a far healthier option than saying, well, we've cut the dividend so we can invest. Often when they do that sort of investment, it ends up being monuments to the CEO and doesn't benefit anybody. So I'd rather get the dividend and then decide myself whether I want to undertake that investment. And history tells us that Australia has, Australian shareholders have done very well out of that high dividend paying culture in Australia. It's led over a long, long period to relative outperformance of our market versus other markets. Certainly, yeah, and some types of investors have obviously built an entire strategy around it. It's absolutely essential to their to their financial well-being to be uh, investing in companies that have really strong payout ratios and good dividends. Yeah, there's no doubt that's happened and it's a function of the low interest rate world we're in that you're getting 1.65% on a on a one-year term deposit rate, not much better if you go out three years, make it 1.75 or something. Mm. Um, whereas if you put your money in a well-diversified portfolio of Australian companies, you get about 4.5%. Add in the franking credits, uh, you can get 5.5% plus. And if you put some effort into picking companies that pay good, sustainable dividends, you can do even better than that. And that's obviously a strategy that many Australians have, I think quite wisely, used to fund their their retirement. It, mm. it makes some sense. And Australians obviously need to think about, well, what's most important to them? Is it absolute security and the value of their investment? Okay, that's the case. Put your money in bank deposits. Um, Alternatively, if you want a decent income flow, it's a bit hard to go past the share market where you do get that decent income flow. It's just that you have to have a well-diversified portfolio. Shoving it in two stocks um, and hoping for the best, um, I don't think is a good strategy. You've got to have a well-diversified portfolio of companies paying decent dividends. Most of them will increase their dividends over time, uh, but there's always some (laughs) who will cut their dividends. So that's why you want to have a well-diversified portfolio of dividend payers. I think, yeah, many of our investors have learned that lesson over the last 12 months. Uh, the assumption that dividends always go up is very similar to the assumption that property always goes up in various right. other sectors. So tell me about which sectors are holding up well at the moment. You made that comment that if you strip out the resources sector, the rest of the companies reporting looked pretty flat or negative. What is holding up well? There are some sectors there. Uh, resources obviously saw good earnings growth. Earnings growth in the resources sector was around 13% and that was partly helped by the iron ore price being quite high. From that to that period, the coal price was quite high. Uh, these are companies that also invested heavily several years ago, so they've expanded their production and their costs have collapsed. So a whole bunch of things going in favour of resources companies. Uh, then, of course, uh, healthcare stocks, uh, a whole a few, a few Australian stocks uh, which have good franchises internationally, uh, good long-term earnings growth potential. Again, double-digit earnings growth out of healthcare, the healthcare sector. Um, I, I guess if you sort of run down, they're not double-digit, but you also saw okay earnings growth for real estate investment trusts, and they're obviously benefiting from 
what's going on in the property sector, a bit tough in retailing, but beyond retailing, commercial, industrial property doing reasonably well. Um, but and, and insurers also saw okay profit growth of around 5.5% through the reporting season. So there were some areas there which, which did okay. It's quite interesting. It's quite widely recognised that the retail sector is really struggling. That's a big headline. Is it showing up quite clearly in the numbers as well? There were certainly a couple which made big headlines saying actually we're doing fine. That's right. There were a few in there and uh, several of those, JB Hi-Fi uh, among them, uh, Harvey Norman right at the end of the reporting season were quite optimistic on the future. Th- this is partly why the share market didn't fall out of bed mm. uh, through the month of August. It had a rough month, but two factors behind that, it had had a huge run up into July, made a record high. So sooner or later, we were going to have a correction. We got that in August. Secondly, the news internationally wasn't too flash. The trade war was ramping up. So you know, we cut down 3% or so. But that's roughly in line with what other markets were doing in terms of the volatility they saw as well. We didn't fall out of bed um, and have a much steeper fall despite this slow profit growth because investors were saying, well, they were saying two things. One is we've got very low interest rates. So that makes the share market relatively attractive. Secondly, uh, there was a bunch of companies out there, some retailers saying, well, you know, it's been tough, but we're doing okay. And we're optimistic that some of the tax cuts, some of the rate cuts will be spent. And there was also a a few developers uh, saying, well, demand for housing might be starting to bottom out and pick up again um, after a few years of falling. So that, that I think, is what helped support the market, that there was a few... Um, positives out there, a few positive comments. Um, and of course, analysts, even though they downgraded their expectations, there is still an expectation that this financial year will see profit growth pick up from just 1.5% or so last financial year to around 6.5% this financial year. That's quite encouraging, I think, for people. So healthcare and resources performing well. Resources get an enormous amount of attention, relatively small proportion of the economy, despite being obviously a very large part of the exports that uh, that we make money out of. And certainly when GDP figures are reported, we focus on the iron ore price in a big way and so on. To what extent does promising reporting or, or strong results out of those two sectors flow through into the economy in terms of employment, in terms of cost to consumers and so on? It certainly helps, but we don't want to exaggerate it, uh, nor do we want to exaggerate the importance of the housing sector in Australia. It's big. Oh, we love exaggerating uh, that. Uh, yeah, we do. And people on Twitter, I find, can't look beyond it. You know, mm-hmm. housing's going down, the sky's falling, we're all ruined. Or alternatively, housing's going down, that means I can get a house, and mm-hmm. therefore it's all fantastic. We need that to happen. So lots of schizophrenia around that. But um, if you think about the resources sector, it's, uh, it, it's around 8% of total production in the Australian economy. Um, so it's, it's significant, but it's not the be-all and end-all. There's lots of other things going on. You know, the services sector is far more important. Um, mining uh, sector, resources sector, I think only employs about 3% of the workforce. The benefit mainly comes, well, over the last few years, last decade or so. Firstly, when the, uh, the, the commodity prices surged, they were making super normal profits some of that money was being paid in tax to Canberra. Through last decade, we got a tax cut every year and that helped the Australian economy. Then we had the mining investment boom, which was, well, prices have gone up, we better invest to take advantage of that. So we expanded the mines and that led to a huge surge in mining sector employment. 
which obviously benefited WA, Northern Territory, parts of Queensland. And of course, in recent times, that's reversed. You know, the mining investment slumped again, that's dragged down those parts of Australia. Um, but the big issue was, well, how come the Aussie economy didn't go into recession? If the mining resources sector was so important and that all fell in a bit of a hole back around 2013, 14 onwards, how come the economy didn't go into recession? The simple answer is that the end of the mining investment boom allowed interest rates to fall and therefore the previously suppressed states of New South Wales and Victoria bounced up again. Part of that was housing. Part of that was housing. You can't get away from that. Or an apartment. Um, A lot of housing construction after years and years and years and years of not building enough dwellings in Australia, we suddenly started building more of them. Um, But it wasn't just that. Tourists came back, uh, students came to our higher education organisations because they could afford to. The Aussie dollar, which was at $1.10 in 2011, fell. Naturally, more people came to Australia. That was good. And the other aspect is that New South Wales in particular has discovered the benefits of infrastructure spending, that uh, you know, they can borrow very cheaply, they sold off some poles and wires associated with the electricity network, and that's led to a huge pool of money that they're investing in infrastructure. Um, so yes, housing was a factor in that, but it wasn't uh, all of it, and we're still seeing the huge surge in infrastructure spending. So the, the key is that resources are significant, uh, but they don't explain how we managed to keep growing. The economy managed to keep growing over the last few years as mining investment uh, collapsed after the end of the mining investment boom. So healthcare was the other one that I mentioned. That has quite interesting implications for the Australian economy, but particularly the Australian population, right, as consumers of healthcare and so on. But you pointed out that of the companies in the healthcare sector that did really well, it's the ones with the strong international franchises that were performing most strongly. That's right, Cochlears and CSLs and so on all doing you know, reasonably well through that period. I mean, healthcare has a, a tailwind behind it. It's a bit like um, tech stocks, you know, fangs, you know, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, I think Google is still G, or is it an A? I don't know. It's always <laughs> it should have been an A, but no, um, that'd make it fan and it'd be weird. And, and there's Apple in there. But anyway, um, Whatever, uh, they're seen as growth stocks. Occasionally, it gets it gets out of control and they get expensive. But healthcare is something similar. It's it's a growth sector of the economy um, that has long term growth potential over and above any cyclical upswing in economic conditions. And so, because these organisations have good franchise, there's a demographic tailwind behind them as the population ages and that sees more demand for healthcare um, and aged care. Uh, that's that's helping that sector, and that's probably going to remain a long-term story. The only complication, of course, is that every so often uh, there will come a time somewhere out there where global growth will pick up again and interest rates will start to rise, Australian growth will pick up, bond yields will start to rise, and we've only got sent a little bit over that over last week, and suddenly investors will say, I like healthcare in a long-term sense, but... Um, I, I can buy auto producers globally or Australian industrials or Australian building material companies at much cheaper valuations. And so the money comes out of these so-called expensive, defensive growth sectors of the market, including healthcare, but also utilities and rents and so on, and goes into these other sectors, um, which are really beaten up cyclicals. And that's if you're looking for value in the market, that's probably where it is. It's not in 
It's not in healthcare. It's, <laughs> it's not in CSL. We love no. it, but it's not with the value. <laughs> it's, it's great long-term mm. potential, that sort of, mm. sort of stuff, but if you're of the view that sooner or later things will turn up globally, then there's better value to be had in the cyclicals and the value stocks. So what do you think the major implications are from these kinds of company reports for the economy at this point in time? It strikes me as you talk that it's very patchy depending on the sector. Some are doing really well, some are doing really poorly. That probably is the story of the Australian economy, isn't it, really, <laughs> uh, over sure. time? You know, there are some economies where things tend to flow uh, fairly consistently across a variety mm-hmm. of sectors. Australia perhaps is a... Uh, a little bit more up and down. It is a little more up and down because there's such diversity in our economy. Uh, I, I know we sometimes say, well, it's not very diverse at all. All we mm. have is uh, financials I and don't resources. think I've ever heard anyone say that, actually. Um, but then if you look at the performance of the economy, it acts as if it's highly diverse. You know, we've got states that are sometimes booming. You know, mm. We used to talk about the two-speed economy in the context of WA, NT Queensland booming and the rest were all you know, doing doing it doing it tough. Mm. Uh, in recent times, that two-speed economy has reversed, and so it's become a situation where you've got different parts of the Australian economy performing at different points in time. And of course, a lot of people mistake that and say, "Well, you know, we've got a mining boom. That's the only thing keeping the economy going. When that ends, we're all going to be ruined." Mm. You go back to the newsletters that international investors and others were writing around 2012. That's what they were saying. It was a common theme. Uh, recently, it's all been uh, well. The only thing keeping the Australian economy going is the housing sector. When it goes, we'll be ruined. Mm. Now, of course, I think that misses the point that other parts of the economy fill in the gap. You know, and that I think is part of the story why over the last 28 years we've gone without a recession. There's always something in there to pop in and fill the gap. You might say, oh, well, public spending has been booming lately. How can we rely on that? You know, that's <laughs> terrible. You know, well, what about the private sector? Well, mm. don't forget that we had years of underinvestment in public infrastructure. So it's quite healthy that we're having that investment in public infrastructure, and that's a good thing. And they've finally worked out the right model, which is not public-private partnerships up front, um, where the private companies pay in a bidding war and pay too much and then go bust afterwards. <laughs> it's um, public sector sells off some proven assets and then to the private sector, so superannuation funds, individual investors get exposure to that, and you use that money to develop new assets, uh, metros or whatever you want to call them, light rails, uh, freeways and so on. Once those assets are proven, then maybe sell them off as well. But the public sector takes that initial upfront risk, and that seems to be a model that works quite well, or it has in New South Wales anyway. If, you, if you're far left, you won't like that at all because it's, it's, <laughs> it's um, involved selling off the, the, the crown jewels, so to speak. But that model is working quite well, and I, and I, I think it would be wrong to say, well, uh, yeah, we should unwind that, that it's unhealthy that we've got all this public spending. I, th- I think in a way it's healthy public spending. It's actually a very encouraging way of looking at things, I find. So I was going to ask you how well do the, does all of the company reporting, so the ASX reporting season, reflect the overall health of the economy. But the point you're making is the economy is many things and they seem to be doing a fairly good balance of bringing in the required spend at the required time in order to offset those areas that are not doing quite so well. That's right. Uh, I I don't want to get too carried away here with optimism. (laughs) um, And there is an issue that profit growth was very low and that's Mm. reflective of an economy which has slowed down. You know, we did have the slowest growth rate since the GFC. Um, absent population growth, our economy is actually going backwards in so-called per capita mm. terms. Uh, 
which is not great. That's not a good thing. By the same token, we have had these per capita slowdowns before at the time of the GFC in 2006. There's been lots of them if you go back through time. Um, I, I guess my key point would be that I don't see the economy going into an out and out recession. If, if you see recession coming either in the US or Australia or both, then and you're Australian-based investor, then you head for the hills. You know, mm-hmm. share markets are going to have a big tumble. If we manage to avoid that because of infrastructure spending, um, mining investment, which was slumping, starting to bottom out, some help from the tax cuts, the interest rate cuts, the lower Australian dollar, which uh, I know we all gripe, you know, I can't go for my holiday in LA, it's too expensive, I'm going to have to go to somewhere terrible like Byron Bay. Well, <laughs> you know, <laughs> what's the problem? Mm-hmm. But the, 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 the economic impact of that is that mm-hmm. that spending stays in Australia. That's, uh, that's what happens. Or foreigners say, well, it's so cheap to come to Australia now, let's go to Australia. So that's what you want to happen in this environment. You know, people say, well, we don't make much. So what, what, what have we got to sell anyway? Well, I can tell you, we've got lots of things. We've got universities, places and universities. We've got um, tourism, obviously. We've got Australian companies that are more competitive when they compete internationally because of the um, lower Australian dollars are mining companies. Most commodities are priced in US dollars. So if the value of the Australian dollar falls, then the value of whatever they're earning, whether it's iron ore or nickel or what have you, it goes up because that US dollars, when translated back to Australian dollars, is worth more. So that's helping the Aussie economy. You know, we've got a current account surplus. This is a big one. Phenomenal. Mm. First time in, uh, since I was 15, 14, (laughs) (laughs) 1975. So since Elvis Presley released the Today album, you'll have to Google it today. No one would know what the Today album was, but it Mm. was the uh, third last studio album, if you include the last two. (laughs) <laughs> as, as 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 two, but uh, in any case, this is 1975, a long mm-hmm. time ago. We spent a lot of time dependent on foreign capital coming to Australia because we had this trade deficit, current account deficit. Uh, now that's no longer the case. Now we may not stay in a current account surplus indefinitely, um, but I suspect even if it does subside again, it'll be a much smaller current account deficit than we've had in the past. So we're not building up that that. Uh, that debt to foreigners like we were in the past. Th- these things are actually quite healthy, I think, and therefore it gives me a little bit of confidence that we're not going to have a recession. Therefore, if you trace it back, you've got an environment of relatively low interest rates. Profit growth might only be, you know, consensus is say 6% for the next for this financial year, but you can still sort of paint a reasonable picture for the Australian share market in that context. Notwithstanding, we seem to have this wall of worry. We go from worrying about the trade war, uh, worries now about the Middle East, which could get worse before it gets better. Mm. Um, you know, worries about politics generally. Everyone keeps throwing in Brexit to the mix, although it's been the case for the last three and a half, three and a bit years now. Um, coming elections in the US, don't know whether you say that's a positive or a negative, depends on your politics, uh, um, political view on the US. But all of these things are there, but in the great scheme of things, it's a low interest rate world. It's got growth, it's not fantastic, but it's sort of okay. Um, and you've still got this imperative, I think, on the part of investors to say, well, what do I want? One and a half or 2% on a bank deposit or do I want a high yield out of the share market? Do you think what's driving, so this performance of the ASX over the last nine months, and it's worth noting that the previous three months were pretty rough, right? So you, a lovely yeah. rebound is a rebound. It's not necessarily coming off a high. 
But it has been an extraordinary performance. Certainly, if you have a look back, um, and I love noting this, and I apologise to the NAV economists because I keep saying it, but you know, 12 months ago, they were predicting two interest rate increases. Now they're predicting further rate cuts after two. So people's opinions on where the world is going change pretty fast based on the data that's around them and the way that the, uh, the market is changing. Those rate cuts have obviously given quite a bit of a tailwind to the ASX investors make relative decisions about where they're going to put their money, mm. which is part of what you're talking to. When you look at the market, do you think that that really strong performance so far this year, albeit pretty choppy through August, mm. uh, is because of the relative performance of other asset classes? Or do you think people are genuinely pretty optimistic about where the market's going? It's probably a bit of both. I don't sense a lot of optimism about the market, but there is a little bit of confidence there that we've had lots of setbacks in the last few years now. We had a major fall around 2011-12 with these Eurozone crisis, American debt downgrade and all that sort of stuff. Then we had the growth scare of 2015-16, uh, both of which saw the Aussie share market and global shares fall 20% or so. And then we saw um, last year, which saw the Australian share market fall 14% from its high in August to low in December, and US shares fall almost 20% from the high in September to the low in December. Uh, so you could, yeah, it's fair enough. You know, we, we had that fall, therefore we, it's, it's helped us bounce back um, to some degree, and that's made the numbers look better. But if you cut through all that volatility, all that noise we've seen over the last, or this decade, returns from the share market have actually been quite reasonable. Uh, yes, you get the setbacks, but dividends are giving us, you know, four and a half percent per annum and in the franking credits, you know, that takes you to five and a half percent thereabouts. Um, plus, we've been getting uh, sort of capital growth every so often, um, which keeps the market going as well. So I, I think it's a combination of uh, yeah, a little bit of residual optimism there that things will be OK down the track, um, notwithstanding always the concerns here and now. And then it's the, the fact that we've got this low interest rate, low bond yield world, which obviously pushes some of that money to share markets. Um, now, of course, a cynic would then say, well, the share market's only been propped up by low interest rates. What if they go away one day? We go back to last year when people were talking about rate hikes. Um, fair enough, that could be an issue, but it's, it's, it's worth noting that the Australian share market is not exorbitantly valued. It's mm. trading on... I think a forward PE of around 16 times, which is above its long-term average, but not dramatically mm. so. This is not 25 times, this is not 100 times as tech stocks were prior to the tech wreck. Uh, it, it's, it's sort of manageable, it's, it's not extreme. Um, and therefore, there is a bit of scope there for interest rates and bond yields to go up without wrecking the share market, particularly given that higher interest rates and higher bond yields would have to come with higher economic growth and therefore higher profits. So it's to me, it's sort of like an okay environment. Um, not fantastic. There's these worries, latest being the Middle East. Um, but I think we have to get used to that as ever since the GFC, this, the worry list seems to have been longer than normal, <laughs> perhaps. Um, longer and broader. Longer and broader. And one thing goes away and next thing you know, another one comes along. Um, which can be quite scary. But I kind of think, well, you know, in my career and my time in superannuation, I've seen the, the 87 share market crash 
market fell fell 50% in two months. Mm. Yeah, it would have been quite reasonable for me to say back then, well, this is hopeless. Yeah, what, what are you idiots in managing my superannuation? What's it all doing in uh, in shares? You know, you just wipe some of it out. Now, fortunately, I didn't say that. I didn't switch away and go to cash, and I wouldn't be too happy today. Um, we've seen the early 90s recession. We've seen the Asian crisis, which was going to ruin the Australian economy in 97, 98. We've seen the tech wreck. We've seen the GFC. These things come along, and they're quite normal in a way, um, but through it all, markets seem to do okay. And I, I have no reason to assume that that won't continue. If the market was a lot more expensive than it is, trading on a much higher PE or dividend yields of 1% or something, then I'd be a lot more concerned, but that's not the case. That is encouraging, I think, for a lot of people, because you're right, we talk about so many risks to the economy and to the market. At some point, you have to kind of either make the decision to invest or not or not invest. If you can't cope with all the risk, then not invest, but then that obviously carries its own challenges. And, uh, and you probably wouldn't be listening to this podcast if that was your concern. I do get people right. sometimes asking about timing. I would say, oh, seriously, if you've been listening for the last 18 months, someone would have told you it was bad timing pretty much every month of those. <laughs> and frankly, right. that would have been true in September last year, but would not have been true in January, right? So don't listen. It, uh, it would just scare you. So... Your point then for investors, I guess, is to stay invested or certainly for those who are concerned about timing, there's probably not a lot of value in in overly concerning yourselves. And I was just writing a piece this morning making the same point, actually, which was uh, had you listened to the pundits late last year, they would have told you there was very little likelihood of strong performance from the ASX this year and rates were going to increase. Instead, we've had the exact opposite happen. Uh, Do you find that's true of most years? Do you see that usually or do you try to tune that up? Oh, I try to tune it out. One of my favourite sayings is turn down the noise because mm. the noise is intense. You know, we go from one issue to another um, and it's become more intense now because that noise is front and centre of your iPhone. And so when you've got a moment to spare, um, people sort of swipe to the news section and not pops the noise. And some of that is financial and, that, and that's scary um, to people. Whereas in the past, the news would, would arrive more slowly and gradually and wasn't in your face to such a degree. And I think there's also this problem that in the old days you'd read the newspaper and the newspaper was arranged in such a way that the headline on the front page would get you into the newspaper, whereas now each individual story has to have a headline that tries to get you in because you're reading it electronically and they want you to click on the headline. And the more exciting and negative, usually negative, because Mm. bad news sells, good news doesn't, Mm. uh, the more negative and extreme the headline, the more likely the that article will get clicks and that journalist will keep his job or her job. So the uh, it's the availability of news and financial news including as well as the other stuff. Mm. Um, but it's also the way it's, it's positioned to you, um, which makes it sound more scary. Um, so I think it's very important to turn down the noise and focus on fundamentals um, and try. I mean, I, I put it this way, if you want to put a lot of effort into trading, then fair enough, it might be a hobby for you. you know, fair enough, off you go, you know, build your models, you know, get a few newsletters, listen to podcasts, do that sort of thing, and um, you, you might move your, your allocation around a lot through companies. Alternatively, if you think, well, I want to enjoy my life, you know, just make sure you get a, a well-diversified mix of good Australian companies and go global a bit. Um, and try and turn down the noise, try and filter it out and take a longer term approach. Um, so it really comes back to what people feel is the best way to do this. But a couple of points I would note here, if you 
go on the back of the nightly news, the finance report on the nightly news, it's 50-50 as to whether you're going to get positive or negative news about the market. It's 50-50. But if you go out on a longer-term horizon, the further you go out, the more the skew goes positive. You know, monthly, it's around 60-70%. Um, yearly, it's about, well, in Australia's case, 8 out of 10 years, you get positive news. In the US, 7 out of 10 years, you go a decade. I think every decade in Australia has had uh, positive um, share market returns. So in the US, not quite as strong as that. But uh, So if you take a longer-term view, then you're less likely to be disappointed. Whereas if you're looking at it daily, more likely you'll get that 50% chance you're going to get bad news. The other thing is just always remember that when investing, share markets, investment markets, climb a wall of worry. Um, that's just the way they are. The share market um, is a giant discounter and it... Um, it uh, yeah, we, we know there's that wall of worry out there, but most of the time those worries don't come to pass. And so you often hit, see this wall of worry, I've got a list of 10 reasons why I can't buy now, and <laughs> you've held back, and then, and then you find, well, all of them uh, faded, they were already factored into the market or whatever, and uh, then the market goes up. Now, this isn't going to work all the time, um, but I do tend to find that people who are constantly focused on the negative, constantly worried about it, the two or three years out of 10 where the market will go down, they end up missing out on the seven or eight years out of 10 where the market goes up. You make so many excellent points there, and I think they're really valuable for people to remember. Uh, it's very easy to get uh, anxious. I think at this point in time, a lot of the news is, is terrifying for people, but you look back at the numbers and they're not too bad. So you produce a lot of numbers, and this is a lovely segue. You produce a lot of numbers, you write a lot of commentary. People can actually follow what you're saying, and the company reporting uh, and reporting season updates are a great insight for people who want to get that granular detail but also get some context around it. Where can people go to follow what you're writing and what you're keeping people up to date about? Well, the simplest way is to go to AMP Capital's website. Mm-hmm. Just go to Google, type in AMP Capital, it'll pop up there. Um, there's a few tabs there, tap on the Insights Hub um, and then within there you'll, you'll find all of his insights. Um, and I also write a weekly report which also gets loaded up there as well. So that's probably the easiest way to find it, uh, I would think. Well, that's where I usually find it when, I've, <laughs> when I don't have access to my drives, to my uh, computer drives, um, and I want to send it to somebody. Um, but I've found that the benefit of my job is that I'm an economist, but I also have a link to investing. Uh, and But I also get out there and communicate with ordinary Australians who are investing. So having those three, economics, investing, and then a communications role sort of helps, I think, in keeping me on my toes. Um, but hopefully that's a value to people. Well, you can follow me on Twitter where the handle is at Shane Oliver AMP. Um, yes, I've still got AMP there. Some people say, well, why didn't you get rid of the AMP bit there at the end? Um, but then I concluded, um, yes, AMP, like other financial organisations, had a rough ride over the last year or so. But the bulk of the people at AMP that I currently work with, I'd say 99.9% of the people I currently work with, and those I've worked with in the past are there to try and do the right thing. But as always, you know, mistakes get made and a few people make wrong decisions and do the wrong thing and that creates problems for everybody else, which uh, we're working through. But So I'm proudly uh, an AMP employee and the thing that motivated me about that was that it has this noble purpose, which is 
and we can assert it to be a sure friend in uncertain times. I'm not trying to put a plug there for AMP, I'm just trying to explain why <laughs> my Twitter um, name still says at Shane Oliver AMP. Um, but uh, yeah, if you want to follow me on a regular basis, that's probably one of the easiest ways in terms of um, getting those tweets. But AMP Capital website is where all our research is stored. Shane Oliver from AMP Capital, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. Also, as always, we hope this episode has been helpful for you on your journey to creating wealth. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future topics, we do love to hear from you. So please just email us at yourwealth at nav.com.au. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.